Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project, a member of the club's board of governors and your moderator. This is another program in the club's special virtual series on the coronavirus epidemic in association with the Zetima Project. You can visit us regularly at commonwealthclub.org to get updates on this series and on other programs. All these presentations are free. This program is generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. It's now my pleasure to introduce our guests. We've got three national leaders with us today. Wright Lassiter is president and CEO of the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, where he oversees all aspects of this $5.8 billion health system, including six hospitals, more than 40 medical centers, a health plan, and over 31,000 employees. Dr. Steve Strongwater is president and CEO of Massachusetts-based Atrius Health, the largest physician group in the Northeast. It has more than 715 physicians and 425 other clinicians, serving 745,000 patients. He's an expert on population-based health and value-based care, and prior to being at Atrius, he served as the chief transformation officer for the Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania. And our third panelist is Dr. William Fleming, the segment president of Clinical and Pharmacy Solutions for Humana, a $65 billion managed care organization that provides health insurance and other services for more than 20 million members. He's a pharmacist by training and spent more than two decades pioneering Humana's pharmacy services. Delighted to have you all with us. And as we get started, and I do this for each of our programs, I want to point out that today is April 7th, 2020. And I say that because those listening later via podcast or radio need to know that since things are moving so quickly. At the time of the program I hosted just this past Friday, there were about 265,000 cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. And as of about an hour ago, we have 395,000, which is just about a 50% increase in four days. And of course, due to the shortage of testing that we've been doing or haven't been doing, the actual number of cases is probably a lot higher than that. So we've got some real issues, and the people we're talking to today are leading large organizations that are on the front line and are trying to deal with this unprecedented crisis. So, right, I want to start with you, since we hear so much about hospitals being overwhelmed, especially in terms of things like ICU beds and ventilators. What has your experience been at Henry Ford so far, and what are you expecting over the next few weeks when things are supposedly going to get even a bit worse? Great. Well, it's great to be with you, Mark. Um, we'll say that certainly um, while New York City is getting um, the bulk of the attention given the size of the of the challenge that the city of New York and the state's facing, um, the state of Michigan and, and Southeast Michigan and Detroit specifically are just right behind them. Um, just before I got on the program, I took a look at the latest database for the state in terms of number of cases, and we have just under 19,000 cases uh, in Detroit, uh, excuse me, in the state of Michigan, um, with about 845 deaths across the state. Uh, in Detroit, we have about 5,500 cases and about 220 deaths thus far. Um, Henry Ford um, has the, the pleasure of treating a large swath of the community, um, and as a result, we have the, the uh, unfortunate um, circumstance of treating a lot of the, the disease that's, that we have in, the, in our area. Um, currently, we have about 800 patients um, across our hospitals um, that have tested positive for COVID. Uh, we have about another 40 that are pending testing, so they're, they're presumed uh, to be positive, and we're awaiting uh, testing. Uh, we've got about just under a thousand patients who are across our hospitals in isolation, um, either because they have COVID-19, because they're suspected of COVID-19, or they have other serious conditions that, that, uh, cause them to be, um, to be in isolation. Um, when I think about the stress that our system is going under, uh, at the present time, it, it starts with, with ICU capacity. So we have, um, ICUs that are anywhere from, um, 86% to 98% full um, at the current time. And so we're very close to our capacity with ICU beds. We're about to open a few additional beds as part of our surge plan um, so that we have additional capacity, um, but we're getting um, desperately close um, to our ICU capacity across our system. So we are, uh, the walls of the organization are certainly strained. 
Um, beyond that, I'd say that um, staffing of our ICUs is also quite critical. Um, as we think about staffing over the next several weeks, um, we have concerns that we are probably 100 ICU critical care nurses short of our demand, of our need um, over that period of time uh, because of the rising census and because um, we have a staff who um, are out of the workplace um, under quarantine because they've been exposed um, and we have a number of staff who've tested positive who are um, who are out of the workforce while uh, while they're awaiting their, their period of self-quarantine. Um, and so those are some of the challenges we're facing, and I can get into others related to lab testing and, and other issues as well. But let me stop there. And, and yeah, I'm curious about the supply of ventilators and personal protective equipment, PPE and so forth. Are your supplies sufficient? And, and if so, how do you do it? How do you maintain that? I, I would love to be able to say that our supplies were sufficient. Um, they are absolutely not. Um, it is a day-to-day struggle for us to, um, to ensure that our staff are safe um, as they're taking care of the, the swath of patients coming into our, our facility. Um, I would tell you that um, the stories that you hear in the news about N95 mask shortages, um, surgical mask shortages, those are true. Um, we have shortages in gowns, um, surgical and isolation gowns, particular isolation gowns. We go through 15,000 uh, isolation gowns per day. And um, we are down to just a few days supply. Um, and we are marshaling our resources, um, both with, with um, begging and borrowing from our neighbors, as well as a host of supply chain sources that are providing us anywhere from a day or two supply, um, and we're hopeful that we will get uh, a pretty large shipment in within the next uh, five days that will make us much more comfortable. In terms of ventilators, um, we have enough at the moment, but we are concerned and we put out requests uh, for about 50 uh, ventilators as we think about the surge happening um, over the next week or so. Uh, and so at the moment, we have enough. Uh, we've gotten donations from, from great places. We've gotten some donations from Tesla. Um, and so we have placed some of those ventilators in, um, in our rural uh, suburban hospitals and brought in the traditional ventilators to, um, to our uh, acute care, uh, tertiary, and quaternary facilities. Uh, and then we're doing what a lot of other organizations are doing, and that is we are converting anesthesia machines mm-hmm. uh, for use um, in patient populations where it is appropriate. Uh, it's not appropriate in your most critical uh, areas, but it is appropriate for some populations. And so um, that's a sense of, of where of where we are there. Well, I'm glad that you haven't had to um, make some of the hardest decisions yet, because the hardest ones that are being discussed are if you simply don't have enough ventilators for everyone who needs them, and uh, the Americans don't don't ration care, but if you don't have enough, you're some, somehow rationing them. So across America, hospitals are starting to think about what if we have to do that, if we just have no choice. Have have people at Henry Ford been thinking about that that unthinkable issue and trying to make plans if it comes to that? We have certainly, Mark. Um, you know, we have a very uh, comprehensive ethics committee process across our system. And, and frankly, before this uh, crisis began, our ethics committee uh, thought through issues like this, and since the pandemic has has hit its it's hit its uh, crisis level, um, we have gone to update our thinking around that process. And as you may know, we we received some publicity about a week or so ago because uh, there was a, a small portion of of our our document around what to do in the most dire of situations with resources that that was. Uh, made public on social media. Um, and what I, my response to, to folks who've asked us is that, you know, we certainly are not doing anything at the moment where we would ration or withhold care from, from any, any citizen who comes into our system. But we are planning in the event that if resources were completely scarce and we had to go to, you know, what is the most dire of, of, um, of medical supply rationing, um, how we might go about doing that in the most uh, ethical and humane manner possible. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a challenge that we haven't really had to face much in the U.S., truly rationing life-saving care. Uh, Steve, I want to turn to you because one of the most curious things to me is that while Wright's Hospital and other hospitals have seen much increased demand, it seems like the opposite is happening for a lot of physicians, particularly those who are practicing on an outpatient basis. I know we've been discouraging patients from going to the doctor's office if they don't really need to, since doing so increases the risk of infection. Um, and it seems Atrius has been so successful there that I read that your patient volume has, de- the visits have declined by about 75%. Uh, 
And that sounds great for keeping people away, away, but but that's led to staff furloughs. So I'm curious about how that's worked out for you in terms of which specialties have seen the biggest drops and actually have any of them seen an increase? Yeah, Mark, it's so good to be here. And I, I just want to thank Wright for the work he's doing and so many other frontline hospitals that are bearing the brunt of this, this crisis. Uh, since March 15th, the governor essentially canceled all elective and non-urgent in in-person visits. And we saw overnight uh, a substantial drop in all of our clinical activity. Uh, we're probably over an 80% drop now of in-person activity. What we did uh, in essence was to pivot the organization to create drive-through testing centers and maintain our urgent care centers and then close down uh, to a, a de minimis number of sites uh, some of which were designated respiratory sites and others which were designated essentially well sites for that other care. Um, when you wind up closing down, you wind up having staff with no work, uh, and we wound up furloughing those, those staff. Uh, we also, as a result, and I think this is likely true of almost every physician practice in the country, we, we are, um, seeing a tremendous drop in our revenues. Maybe this is true of hospitals as well. Uh, and so we pretty quickly, in addition to the furloughs, put most of our folks on salary withholds. Um, and uh, we continue to look at ways to preserve our cash. Uh, I, I would say that almost all of the surgical specialties are effectively not working right now, other than for uh, urgent coverage. And our frontline docs, you would imagine, are now flipped to telehealth or um, phone encounters, or using the EMR, the electronic medical record patient portals to interact with patients. We quickly turned most of our pharmacy activities to mail order and uh, or local pickup. Um, and we've more or less tried to reinvent the way the practice is working, uh, focused on urgent and immediate needs. We too suffer from the same PPE shortages and testing um, uh, relatively limited test kits uh, in our drive-throughs, and we are quite concerned that as the uh, surge, the peak comes, and more and more people, particularly healthcare workers, need to be tested, that we may not have sufficient testing um, kits to be able to manage that surge. Gosh, you're missing a lot there. Now, you mentioned uh, telemedicine, and uh, telemedicine's been around a while, but it seems to having quite a surge right now. Uh, partly because obvious needs and also the government, uh, both state and local uh, federal governments have relaxed some of the rules around privacy to make it a little easier to do it over FaceTime or Skype or something like that. So are you increasing your use of telemedicine and is there anything sort of strategic and organization-wide about that or are doctors doing it on a one-off basis? It's a pretty strategic pivot for us. We used uh, telehealth very selectively prior to this uh, COVID outbreak, mainly for behavioral health and urgent care. And now we have trained essentially all of our staff. And the work now is syncing up to set up schedules for physicians so they are actually uh, working no differently than they were they in the office. I think as it first started out, it really was a bit random. And now we're trying to synchronize so that it feels a lot more like a routine day. Um, and we, we like this technology. We know that it works. Uh, we, we, are, we think that it's not going to go away. The main issues that have historically stopped us from going to scale have been billing codes. Uh, and I'm hopeful that all of those issues will be resolved in this epidemic. Great. So we'll prove some things uh, that some things that can work this time or don't work. Either way, we'll learn a lot through this, the hard, maybe the hard way, but at least we're learning it. Interesting. Now, William, as, 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 as president of a part of a health insurer, you have a different relationship to patients than either Wright's group or, or, or Steve's group does, but you've got a lot of people to connect with and a lot of people try to support in different ways. So what's the biggest challenge that you're facing, that Humana is facing in this kind of crisis? Yeah, hey, Mark, uh, thanks for having me on and, and appreciate the opportunity to be here. I would tell you, start off by saying that I think our biggest challenge is, and I, I appreciate going last in this group of representing the, you know, a, a large delivery system, a large you know, physician practice, and then a pair of you is that you know, we need people to play their position on that five-year-old soccer team. One of the things we worried about early on was everybody running towards the COVID patient and trying to solve that problem. But as, as Wright clearly pointed out, he's got that covered. I mean, there's things that he's got to, to, you know, to needs help with, with PPE, 
uh, and the like, you know, ventilators, ICU beds and those things. We just don't view that to be a role that the payer needs to get involved in. And some of the things that uh, Steve is dealing with and, and what he's got to work through, we view that our role is a little bit different. We need to understand capacity. We need to care about it. We need to understand what's going on in the physician world. We need to care about it. But we really view our role to be one here in the short term that did some things to relieve certain pressures. Examples, you know, we, we relieve certain pressures around administrative things, around some of the, you know, stars and quality things that we needed to do from a Medicare Advantage perspective, because now is not the time to worry about those sorts of things. We announced some relieving of pressure around the need to, uh, you know, around prior authorization, uh, because obviously, you know, those things are just challenging when you have the delivery systems trying to get, you know, people out of the uh, urgent care uh, hospitals in either a home or skilled nursing facilities. And what are those things we can do to facilitate uh, those transitions in care? And that's really important. So there's administrative things we did. There's some clinical things we did. And I would say there's also some financial things we did where we we tried to we're, we're trying to uh, facilitate some of the you know payment things that clearly are pressuring some of the the conversation here that that uh, that Steve brought up and at the same time I would tell you uh, we've advanced um, our thinking uh, both in what the government uh, has pushed out but also our own thinking around to advance telehealth uh, we believe that in the early days of this we've uh, done an an okay job of advancing telehealth through the traditional telehealth vendor to um, keep the, uh, the the sick um, and have a triage path for the sick, but at the same time have the uh, more chronic member uh, be able to have an avenue to go uh, seek care. And so we, we we tried to make more telehealth available. Admittedly, that you know it's just not where it needs to be in the U.S. at this point. Sure. At the same time, we recognize that telehealth through the traditional physician practice is something that needed to advance. And so when we think about using FaceTime or using a simple audio phone call, we made those capabilities available at basically the same office visit, you know, payment to that physician practice to encourage uh, the physician, encourage the, the, the member who's more chronic related, that's not COVID, to be able to seek their care. And because I think it, the, the theme for me around this is, when you think of Humana, you might be thinking of the fact that we've got a lot of members who are uh, seeing physician practices who are practicing value-based care. They're in this integrated plan. Those, those physicians are in a world where the financial thing that Steve talked about doesn't really exist there because they're getting paid, you know, some sort of PMPM or capitation sort of, of, of method where they're sharing the risk and they've got to engage with those members. The, the physicians who are not in that value-based practice, that, that's where there's obviously other pressures that we need to think about. Ultimately, we think our role to play is to work on the administrative side, work on the clinical side, and also work on um, the financial side to, to, to do our part to navigate through this. If I had a material concern, Mark, it, it's that we got a lot of effort going on around you know, COVID, which is certainly super important, but we cannot forget about the physical health issues with people with congestive heart failure and diabetes and the like through this journey, as well as the behavioral health side. And, and it's those things that we believe we've got a role to play to be a coordinator of care and to advance some of the things that we just, that I just mentioned. Great. Thanks. So it sounds like a lot of things to try to make doctors' lives a little bit easier in this difficult time, regulations and other requirements that let's not worry about them too much right now, relax as much as possible. But I know you've also done some things on the patient and the member side. I, I read that Humana, along with Aetna and Cignet and some other large national insurers, are, are waiving co-payments for all commercial members uh, to make it e easier to make sure they can go and seek care. Do you expect that will have much impact on the member's behavior in getting tested or seeking care? You know, I, Mark, I, I don't know. I, I suspect it probably have some modest impact, but but certainly that aspect of of making the uh, you know the making the seeking care for COVID affordable, uh, taking that issue off the table, uh, uh, covering the the tests and covering you know those treatment costs is is we felt like was a really important thing to do and we had that announcement about ten days ago give or take because we recognize that this is something that um, is so large 
we, we cannot, we cannot allow these things to get in the way of, of seeking care at this point. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that Humana is doing to try to influence its members' behavior or educate or support in different ways because of the pandemic? Well, one of the things uh, that we've uh, done, Mark, is, is I would tell you in the last, um, 16 or so days, uh, we've, 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 uh, demonstrated, I think in part, an agile approach to trying to, uh, develop the right cohort thinking, uh, around things we can do for proactive clinical outreach to those members who are, have those chronic, who either have COVID and that's one dynamic or who have other uh, chronic conditions. That's another dynamic so that we could do a proactive clinical outreach to make sure that we're doing our part to help the COVID patient who's might be, you know, isolated at home or, or, or not able or been quarantined to home and, and those sorts of things. Uh, make sure they have access to uh, food. We've done a lot of work here to, uh, to uh, connect with our members around their food needs, their social determinants of health needs and all the things that come with those really rich things that are so important to recovery as you think about that population. And at the same time, we've launched some cohort work doing proactive care management outreach for the various other patient types in terms of chronic care and behavioral health and the like. Again, connecting not only their physical health needs and behavioral health needs, but also those needs from a real social determinant perspective. Mm-hmm. One of the common themes that we're hearing from a lot of people who have transportation challenges, health conditions, you know, other issues is access to food. These shelter in place orders are really challenging. And if you're at risk, the last thing you need to do is go out into, um, into the world that's, that's around us, especially in some of the communities that, um, that Wright talked about and that Steve talked about that, um, having, you know, these folks at risk out in those communities is a real issue. So us trying to figure out the food situation, help solve those where we can, uh, we felt like is a really important thing and a role for us to play to help navigate, help our uh, members navigate through this important time. Great. Thanks. Right. I'm going to come back to you. I know that I was sorry to read that you've already had several employees within the Henry Ford healthcare system succumb to COVID-19, which must be really hard. And I, I guess I want to know how has that affected the other staff and how well are you able to protect your team given the shortage of PPE? Thanks for the question. And I would say a couple of things. First, um, so we were the first uh, hospital in, in Michigan to receive FDA approval to begin doing testing. Um, for COVID-19. And so we thought that was very important. One, because we wanted to test not only the community, but be able to test physicians and team members um, in our system. And so we've been testing um, our employees um, at a, as, as a high priority um, segment of our, of our internal testing uh, population. So, you know, our priorities are uh, inpatients who, who are symptomatic um, uh, emergency department uh, patients who are symptomatic, and then employees who show uh, signs um, and ex- kind of have a history of exposure. Um, and so we have, uh, you know, unfortunately, since we began testing our employees, um, about 700 employees who have who have tested positive um, uh, the COVID virus, and that's out of testing. Um, I think to up to date, we've tested probably close to. Um, 6,000 uh, employees thus far um, of the, of the 30 some odd thousand we have in our system today. Um, and so I would tell you that um, obviously there's great stress and strain in, in, uh, in every workplace because people are nervous and scared about, about the COVID virus. Um, we feel very comfortable that while the, uh, Henry Ford, like many other um, health systems that are in the middle of the storm have PPE challenges that we have, we have we have sufficient PPE to ensure that we're not endangering our, our staff. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't work on a day to day basis to make sure we get more in. And frankly, uh, it is a constant struggle. And the amount of the amount of um, material we're going through today currently, um, you know, creates a great deal of anxiety amongst our staff. Um, and so I would say that that our staff are, as you as you might expect, they are rallying around uh, each other and around the organization, the community, as they're dealing with responding to the crisis. But they are concerned, frankly, because uh, what they also don't want to do is uh, expose their family and the, their loved ones to the COVID virus. Um, and so one of the things that we've that we've uh, put into place is arranging for lodging um, for 
for staff who have a real concern around, um, I'm working two shifts. I don't want to expose my family. So I think I need to stay somewhere in, you know, downtown, midtown Detroit, um, and be able to take off my clothing in a, in a hotel room or in a, in a dorm, in a university dormitory that we've, we've, um, we've established, uh, as opposed to going, going home and exposing my, my, my uh, spouse or my kids. Um, and so we're trying to do things of that nature to, to try to help um, reduce the angst around um, the services they're providing to the communities. Sure. Sure. Steve, are you having similar issues with some of your physicians or other clinicians? Are not to the same extent. I would say that our staff in general have responded extraordinarily well and, the most stressed staff are the ones on the front line in urgent care and to a lesser extent in primary care. We've put in place behavioral health care for our staff and set up generally during this sort of period of uncertainty support of that sort. And we have focused principally on over communication. So people know what's going on and they have a route always to ask their questions and to uh, hopefully get answers very quickly. Yeah. So it's a test of, of leadership in so many levels. Mark, similar to what Steve just indicated, I mean, I think that that the point he raised about communication is so important during a time like this. Um, so, for instance, we we send our employees a daily communication. We call the the COVID nineteen daily update, and so they get a report each day um, that comes out from uh, from our chief operating officer and our chief clinical officer that describes here is all the things that that we're seeing across the system on a day to day basis. Here's how many patients our laboratory has tested uh, today. Here's how many patients have come into our to our ERs and to our to our uh, inpatient units. You know, here are the things we're doing next. Um, similar to Steve, we have put a significant amount of, of behavioral support in place because we, we think of what's happening today, frankly, like uh, being on a battlefield, and you think of, of uh, staff being traumatized, um, not necessarily because they're dealing with with sickness and illness, but, but frankly, when you think about most hospitals, you don't think about the amount of, uh, of death, uh, that's happening today. And so even our ICU staff don't have to deal with death on a day to day basis. Um, you know, since we began this process, we have had, um, between 140 and 150 patients, uh, die in our, in our care across our healthcare system. And so we have ICU nurses who are regularly experiencing demise that they're just not accustomed to because death isn't that frequent in a, in a hospital environment um, on a day-to-day basis. And so the emotional support for our staff is really, really, really important, um, as is spiritual support. And we're finding it's not just about employee assistance and psychological support, but it's also about trying to trying to allow um, individuals to to um, to meet their spiritual needs, whatever that might be for an individual. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know Henry Ford uh, uh, serves a diverse population, including a lot of low-income people. Um, and uh, my understanding is that there's, there's, there's greater risk there in many ways. Of course, greater more comorbidities is, is part of the problem, too. But uh, what can you do or what are you doing to try to um, both test and, and differentially serve uh, lower-income people who might be more vulnerable in many ways? You know, that's um, um, under normal circumstances, I would talk with you about the host of things that we do on a regular basis to deal with social determinants. And I think um, um, Bill earlier talked about food insecurity. And so I would tell you that that that's something that we're normally doing on a fairly regular basis is is addressing um, our patient food insecurity needs. You know, to some extent in the midst of this crisis, um, I can't tell you that we've done anything more. Uh, than what we've normally done because the reality is we're really hunkered down um, as we're dealing with the influx of folks coming to our hospitals. And so we haven't done any more than we normally do. But on a normal basis, we have, we, we have food prescriptions that we, that we uh, uh, provide for patients who are food insecure to ensure that they get access to, um, to our partner food banks. Um, in some cases, we have food delivered. Uh, to them upon discharge. And so those kinds of things haven't stopped during, during the, the COVID-19 um, crisis. We haven't done anything extra. Um, I will tell you that we, we do believe to your point that one of the reasons we're seeing a greater incidence of, of COVID-19 uh, spread in particularly in Detroit, but in Southeast Michigan is because of the underlying social determinant and underlying health needs that exist, the underlying poverty that exists, 
um, and the, the challenges of, of the communities that we serve in Southeast Michigan in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about, how about you and, and Humana members? I know that you have a lot of commercial members, but you have an, a lot of uh, Medicare Advantage members, a lot of seniors as well. Um, do, do you, are you having to do different things for the seniors versus the others in terms of whether it's food insecure delivery or, 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 or for instance, if they have trouble getting their medications, uh, are there differences between your commercial populations and your older senior populations? Yeah, I, I think that obviously with the uh, commercial population that you know, if I compare commercial versus Medicaid versus Medicare versus TRICARE, th- those are very different populations and how they show up. They're not different in the context of perhaps, you know, the COVID and whether you have COVID or whether you have, you know, congestive heart failure and, and sort of the, that clinical cohort thinking. I think they're similar in that way. But the, one of the unique circumstances that I think our commercial customers are, are, you know, working through is through that employer lens, um, you know, the revenue side and the furlough side and the potential loss of insurance side. So I, I do think our commercial customers, both at the employer level and at the, um, at the frontline member level, they're experiencing some different constraints than perhaps the Medicaid member, the Medicare Advantage member, and certainly the TRICARE member where they don't have of will I have a job tomorrow and will I lose my lose my health care and health benefits and so I, I think there are some unique things there that's adding stress in, into the conversation probably adding some undue stress for that uh, commercial group um, and then them having to deal with you know this whole issue of loans and some of the subsidies and sort of part of the CARES Act and so as they all navigate through that you know we're trying to do our part again play our play our role on that uh, five-year-old soccer team to help that employer understand their choices, help them understand the things that they can do on that employer side. But at the same time, then from the clinical side, the cohorts are the same and all the outreaches we're doing, all the things we're doing to try to support the members with, you know, early refills of the medications. We, it's another thing that we did to, to, to really relax the early refill thing and allow them to have, have more medication on hand, especially from the, from the chronic uh, care point of view, it's so important to have that safety and security, be able to get at their home if they want to use mail order, but importantly, so that they can do the social distancing thing. And it's, it's really so important to that, you know, the telehealth thing I mentioned, trying to keep folks at home. A lot of our work we really believe is how do we help keep people at home? How do we help keep them safe? How do we ensure uh, the opportunity for them to engage with their physician by way of tele? How do we simplify, you know, those costs? How do we make sure that the physician supported from the financial side? We just think that's a role for us to play, and, and it's it's one that we've been uh, navigating through. I might add one thing uh, to this conversation. Uh, you asked about, you know, things from the, you know, em, uh, sort of the employer side of supporting um, the employees in, in a in a delivery system versus a physician practice. You know, one of the things I would describe to you that, that we did as Humana, the employer is sort of like, you know, when you're on that airplane and you get that message, put your oxygen on first so you can help others. Um, one of the things we tried to do was social distance our buildings. You know, we had about a third of our workforce that traditionally worked at home anyway. We had another third that in early March, we, we were able to send home, you know, nearly overnight. And we had about another 20% or so that we got home in an organized fashion over the next number of days. And we did that through a few viewpoints. One is the safety of the, of the employee and the security and all those important things that the other panelists uh, talked about. So important to do that. So important to communicate with them. But importantly for us to get them home so they can be there for the customer to do this important outreach work that we talked about and, and how we want that to come to life. The remaining uh, percentage of our associates who, who are not at home are those who are in our physician practices. We also own clinics. Um, they're in our pharmacies, both our mail order pharmacies and our local pharmacies that are in clinics. And those folks have got to be on the job and, and, and in the scrum, no different than, than the other panelists. Um, and then folks that are just supposed to be in our buildings um, because, you know, we still got to answer the mail. We still got things coming in. There are certain jobs that still just must be in that building. And, and by getting the associates out of the building, it allowed us to create social distancing for those that needed to be in and do our part in the various communities that we serve uh, to play our role in, in those communities. That's a great, 
great point. If you're a leader of a large healthcare company, you not only have members or patients, but you also have employees and you're, you're affecting their health a great deal in this case. Uh, for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to the Commonwealth Club, where we're discussing the COVID-19 pandemic with Henry Ford Health System CEO Wright Lassiter, Atrius Health CEO Steve Strongwater, Humana Clinical and Pharmacy Solutions President William Fleming. Uh, Wright, I want to go back to you for a question, because you're obviously facing something that no one really planned for. If we planned for it, we didn't plan enough for it, obviously, that we weren't really expecting it to go down this way. Um, so I'm sure that when you're constantly thinking about what's going to happen next. And I'm wondering uh, what you think of as the best case scenario you could see over the next several months, plausible best case scenario, and the plausible worst case scenario that, that you're facing. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about the best case scenario first, um, or or what I would call, you know, what we're basically doing is doing sort of three three scenario planning with three uh, potential outcomes. Sort of a we're sort of we're saying sort of a kind of a worst. Uh, a uh, slightly better and a slightly better. We're, we're not necessarily thinking of a best case scenario in the sense that like everything goes back to normal overnight because we just don't think that's, that's yeah. um, very possible. Um, but here's, here's what I would say that uh, in, in the best of circumstances, what might happen? Well, you know, we've had about four days now where our admissions for COVID-19 patients has been flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have two estimates that says that, um, that Southeast Michigan will reach its peak um, somewhere later this week. So that's either one says Thursday, one says Saturday or Sunday. Um, and then there's another estimate that says later, like uh, first, first of March, uh, first of May, excuse me. So if you presume that we hit the peak later this week, uh, in my mind, the best case scenario would be that we continue to see flattening in our organization and in Southeast Michigan and across the state and um, the best case scenario is very likely that um, um, around July 1, we believe that things start coming more like normal. We're having a conversation today in our, with our senior leadership team where we talked through the 8,000 procedures that we have canceled thus far since we began shutting down anything that wasn't clearly emergent or very, very critical. And of those, um, our team said, you know, uh, there's about 10% of those cases that we really believe that within about seven to 10 days, we could responsibly begin doing those in very, very limited scenarios. Um, so, um, so let's, let's start planning for that in, in facilities where we're comfortable we can isolate the risk, both for the patient and and the, the, our caregiver staff, our team members, and think about could we start that in seven to ten days? So I would say that that um, and thus far we're looking at forty eight percent reduction in uh, patient revenues um, and rising. And so I would say that you know it it will take um, it will take likely June for the for the gates to be opened at all. I think July to suggest that uh, we begin getting back to maybe 25% of normal. And then over the next quarter, that 25% ramps up to where by, by beginning of Q4, things look like maybe 75 to 80% of what normal might look like. And I'd probably say that's, that's probably in my mind, the best that it could get. The worst case scenario would be that, no, we don't hit our peak um, at the end of this week. We hit our peak more like May, which then means that that sort of shifts everything back. Um, and then as we think we're climbing out of this come summer and we get into the fall, we have a resurgence of the COVID-19, of COVID-19 either the same form or some mutated form that, it sort of puts us back into a mode where, where we have some, maybe not as much of the drama and trauma that we have today, but we have a, a significant resurgence of, of infections in Michigan and across the United States. Now, you know, that's probably, you know, my colleagues on the, on the panel might say that that's, you know, crazy or nuts, but, you know, there are some folks who say that there's the poss- distinct possibility that there could be a, a, um, a resurgence of the COVID 
virus um, come the fall into our next, you know, winter flu season. And so the worst case scenario would be that in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. William, for your scenario plan, does it look very different from what Wright described? So here's what I would tell you. I, I thought Wright did a great job of describing his views of what's going on in his local community. Imagine sitting in a large payer who's got members in really every community in the U.S. and Puerto Rico, and we've got to have that same conversation that Wright just had about every one of those communities. I might peak this week or it might be in May. I might peak in early May, but it might be in late May or June. And so, again, when you start thinking about the role to play and how this is going to evolve, you know, it's, it's going to be at, at truly at a you know, local community level. That, that old adage that healthcare is local couldn't be more profound at this point in time. And so as a payer, we're trying to think through that from the various communities across the U.S. where we're either strong in or you know, moderate in but, but, and, and certainly weaker in. But, but we recognize that it, this thing could shape itself differently community by community by community. Um, I would just tell you all that uh, we're thinking about this in three phases. Um, phase one, um, and we're, we're, we're shaping this as, as we go along candidly, uh, but phase one is more or less what we're calling the containment phase. That, that's where we're at today, trying to, you know, trying to be part of the containment trying to work through all the things we got to do in containment with, you know, the administrative side, the clinical side, the financial side, and, and, and trying to, you know, navigate through those, those incredible complexities, the outreach, the getting you know, our associates to home, the, you know, the stopping of certain activities, ramping up of others, the food thing. I mean, it, it's all part of the containment, the watching of which curve do you believe? Is it the Lombardi curve in Italy or the other curve, you know, community by community. And then, and then after that phase, and whether you believe that phase is, is right just laid out, you know, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, history will tell us who's right and wrong on that at a community level. Then we believe there's a recovery phase where uh, we look at repatriation is the word I've been using of, of uh, employees. We call them associates back into the workplace. What does that look like? Is it a passport driven model that's driven by the serology of your of your uh, of your COVID you know testing, um, is there another method that's going to be used at the regulatory level or, or state level? Um, how do we think about repatriating some of those things that we turned off during this thing, whether it was clinical quality related, operational related, administrative related? We recognize that there's a recovery phase, if you will, you know, post this thing, and then there's something that we believe is out there called the new normal, mm-hmm. and what is that? And what does that look like? And, and I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples from my view. One of the things that I, I've, uh, I've been trying to do is, is serving as our enterprise quarterback for this response is to kind of dribble the ball with my head up and try to understand you know, what's going on. And I would say that the rise of tele, the use of tele, the use of those capabilities are examples where I sure hope we don't go back to what we did when we, entered this conversation and we allowed this this virus and this pandemic to teach this US marketplace that there's a different way of delivering care. And maybe maybe the way we're triaging uh, patients today with with Tela ought to be the way we should work coming out of this. Maybe there ought to be a different way of thinking about how to show up there for whether it's a chronic care issue or acute care issue. But we see the role of Tela as an important thing. We see the role of home. I mean, we're all in our home these days. We're, and, and so, and so what is the role of, of, of doctor at home, ER at home, hospital at home? What is the role of, of, of home health? Is there an opportunity for us to really rethink some of these important capabilities on the other side of COVID as that new normal comes in and reshapes itself? There's a lot of stuff that should go back to the way it was. But I sure hope everything doesn't go back because that would be a big disappointment. Yeah. Mark, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch uh, how many rules and regulations have been relaxed all in the name of COVID. But these are all the same kinds of programs that many physicians who are in value-based care have been promoting for years. Uh, and I, my, my hope is that this will be the stimulus to be able to 
uh, flip to a new way of providing care, whether it's virtual care or, as Will just said, uh, more uh, innovative, creative ways of keeping people healthy uh, and out of fixed-based facilities that are expensive. Great. Yeah. And I've heard uh, others say the same, They're the, that hope. And some of the things they mention most frequently are telehealth, which my understanding is has been uh, it's been around for a while, of course, but it hasn't grown as much as it could based not because doctors don't want to do it, uh, but based on, th- uh, or we don't have the technology because we do, but based on regulation and reimbursement rules, particularly government rules that don't right. have to get in the way. Right. So those have been relaxed. Right. Certainly uh, uh, doing some services in the home. Um, um, some of the regulations also, uh, the other one that's been mentioned is um, uh, clinicians such as some nurse practitioners and pharmacists being limited in what they're allowed to do, right. even though they really do have the training to do more. So each of those things may are, may be relaxed at this point, and we may find they work just fine and they may persist. Are there any other things you think that we're testing now that may not go back to the way they were before? It's a, it's a really great question. Uh, I would say that the rules generally, the regulation and oversight, credentialing and the like, are not going to go back. The top of license issues, I think, may be transformative. Uh, at this point in time, they're state-based issues. And now we, we're seeing cross-state credentialing. We're seeing top of license uh, practitioners actually doing a lot more. Some of the rules that Medicare had related to signing, I don't want to say ridiculous, but signing forms for the sake of who's signing what, uh, I think with any luck at all, uh, will be permanent uh, so that we can have a progressive Mm -hmm. delivery system. Mark, I was just going to say that uh, as I just listened to to my colleagues here, to to, to William and Steve, I completely agree. It's one of the reasons why I said that I think that that the best case scenario is maybe 80% like it was. Mm -hmm. and William and Steve both really filled in the blanks of what I meant by that um, around um, both changes in practice. Uh, you know, we have, we have our, our virtual health has increased 350% in the last 30 days. Mm-hmm. We were already doing a lot um, before this, but, but to the point that my colleagues have made here, as we are considering fundamentally changing how we do what we do because we're now restricted um, I would tell you that I was just on a call last evening with uh, with Sima uh, Verna, with the, uh, the head of CMS, and we were talking about workforce issues um, and what they could do to be even more responsive. And I think that they've been extremely responsive around regulatory easing during this phase. And I completely agree with Steve. I think that the way that things are working now, it will become very clear that those that the, the changes that have been put in place during this pandemic should stay because they're fundamentally allowing uh, better and more efficient and more effective practice of medicine um, across across our country. So. Yeah, I think that's the should, of course. Uh, we have a patchwork of federal and state regs, and a lot of the regs we're talking about are state regs. So you have to get 50 different states to agree to those changes. But but it's interesting. People have raised the notion of when you have this kind of a, of a huge battle and a huge effort, it's better if it's centralized. That's why when we have a war, we have one army, not lots of armies. And we, we're seeing this play out in a very interesting way in New York State, where the governor said, you know what, we got a bunch of different hospitals and hospital systems, but at this point, you're all one, we're going to share resources, we're going to kind of um, move people and resources around as needed within our state. Um, and that may happen in other states, I suppose, I don't, right? I don't know if you think that's likely to happen in Michigan, or is it, is it likely dependent on how, the degree to which you, you, you exceed your capacity? Well, you know, I think that um, New York is a very unique, unique case because there's such a concentration in the city, particularly. You know, there's obviously COVID outside New York City. Um, and so I think that's it's easier to talk through that, uh, talk about it in that environment than it is across a state with a geography like, like Michigan. Having said that, um, I've been on more calls with my colleague CEOs in the last three weeks around how we work together to do X with the governor's office with the with the county executives, multiple county executive offices, with the you know with multiple mayors' offices, and so so I do think that there is value in you know in some level of of consolidation to to work on things jointly. Um, but you know what I would say is that you know uh, like it or not, our, our country is built on on capitalism and it's built on individuality and you know this whole notion of federalism versus not and you know state control versus federal control. 
And so, you know, there's some things that I think work well when you centralize them. And there's some things that need to stay individualized because uh, that's what a lot in a, in a market-based environment, you know, that's what allows innovation and creativity. And so, so I think there has to be a balance of both. And we're finding it that at times coordination of things like the supply chain is very useful. So you don't have sort of Ryan Peter to pay Paul, right? And so you need some, you need some coordination that, that reduces the burden on, on individual actors. But then there are times where individual actors need to have their ability to do things um, independently. Yeah. Well, certainly for some of the equipment we need, we've seen not only hospital systems competing with one another, but states competing with one another. And it just doesn't necessarily seem like the best way to do it overall. Now we've talked about what we think may, uh, may change, uh, long-term. Uh, one of the things that I think won't change is there'll be a lot of demand for healthcare. And since so much of that demand has not been able to be fulfilled, as we've talked about, uh, during the last month or so and for the next month or so, there'll be a big resurgence, right? You were talking about this. There'll be a lot of demand as soon as it's, it's allowed to come back. It probably will, as you point out, not come back one day all of a sudden. It'll be, uh, allowed a little bit. Um, but you know, hospitals were, you know, by and large, and, and Steve, physician officers were reasonably full before this started. When you have all this pent-up demand, it, it comes back, plus you have what you would have had that month anyway. How do you see that, that sort of that pig working through the python when it, it, it's a, when that python's not out to eat again? Steve, well, you start with that and then write. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, in our case, uh, we anticipate that we will be adding on uh, work after hour, after traditional hours, weekends, uh, and the like. Uh, both because I think not only is there pent up demand, but there's a lot of chronic illness that's not being adequately treated right now. And you let that go for two or three months and you're going to wind up having to be, that is to be forced to do something. But for us, we're thinking that we're going to have to expand hours and work nights and weekends to try and catch up to meet the patient needs. Mm-hmm. There's just no, in our case, it's, there's no way around it. Yeah. Right. How about you? So, you know, I would concur with what Steve just said. Um, you know, we certainly are imagining that we will need to expand hours of service um, for things that require in-office visits. Um, I will say, though, that we are really working hard trying to expand our, our virtual health capabilities so that um, our patients and, and members in our health plan today connect with their physician right now and have virtual visits where they can so that they so that their health status doesn't deteriorate um, during a time when they can't go into the office. And so we're trying really hard to reach out and we're not just sort of waiting for our patients. We actually are doing a fair amount of, of reaching out to, to our patients and to members in our, in our health plan to say, um, remember you have your, my chart capabilities that plugs you right into your physician's office, uh, send her or him a note and let them know how you're doing, how you're feeling for something you need. Um, and so we are trying to to manage a lot of our primary care demand today through virtual visits, but we do completely anticipate, as Steve indicated, that we will expand service hours, um, evenings, and weekends um, to accommodate the procedure-based activities, which you can't you can't do virtually. Yeah, that's yeah. And Mark, if I if I just add it in on that, maybe built on that a little bit. I, to me, I think this this is both a conversation about you know what's going to happen when when this when this uh, is over. And at the same time, a thing that I hope uh, we can advance. And I'll go back to a comment I made earlier around, you know, uh, value-based care. And that hopefully this will, you know, when we look at this, there's going to be those physicians practicing value-based care that financially are going to navigate through this probably just fine because they have those capitation payments and the like. And and and, and they, they're accountable really for making sure they're staying ahead with, uh, with those patients uh, through this journey. Yeah, on their chronic and behavioral health, you know, conditions, and and so, so how they do that with you know, virtual care, how they use the telephone, how they use FaceTime, how they use a telehealth model—that's all up to them. But they got the ability to thrive through this, and then those physicians still practicing sort of in that you know fee-for-service method. You know, that's that's a very different conversation. We're trying to support those folks as well, but this might actually be an impetus to help navigate through that journey around getting more patients, more physicians to practice value based on the other side of this, and at the same time, get more of you know, members or patients into value based physician practices. So, yeah, may I just may I jump in here just for one second, because I think a lot of what Will has said is right, but there's a nuance to that. And that is, you know, almost 80% of our revenue uh, is uh, globally budgeted in one form or another. But that other 20% and the mechanism in which 
some of the capitation is paid often tees off of fee-for-service. And so uh, when you're in this hybrid environment, it's really complicated to kind of manage through, at least it is for us at this moment in time. And a great deal of Medicare and Medicaid is teed up off of fee-for-service. So um, reconciling and kind of working your way through, uh, uh, you know, eight months, 10 months of that sort of um, reimbursement environment is going to be challenging yeah. for a lot of practices. Thanks. Just to be clear for everybody, fee-for-service medicine is when you pay a doctor or provider for doing a particular service. And the, the criticism of that these days is that it causes doctors or providers to do more than they perhaps otherwise would. And these other issues like global budgeting or value-based care, the hope is that by paying doctors a, a chunk of money to care for a, a number of patients over a period of time, they don't think about being incentivized to do too much or too little. They get a certain amount of that money and they, they do what they need to do. That's that's the hope there. And as Steve, as you're pointing out, that some doctors are paid some ways for some patients and others for others. And so right. I'm, I'm sure for the hospitals as well. And that's pretty confusing. But that equation may change at this point. So it'll be very interesting. Here's the, here's another question I have for each of you because, uh, well, pandemics do vary. Epidemics do vary. Some of them are more deadly, uh, but harder, but less contagious, right? Or vice versa. Some of them we found here. Interesting thing about this particular epidemic is it doesn't seem, it disproportionately doesn't seem to affect children, right? The older you get, it's a pretty clear, uh, uh, greater danger. Um, that's not true for all epidemics either. So anyway, we can't predict what the next epidemic will be, but it's likely there will be another one, right? And, and then, you know, we hope not for a long time. So we, I think we've all learned a lot from this epidemic and, and, and can be right, we can certainly rightly criticize our government perhaps for not doing enough to, to, to prepare and maybe even organizations. So here's the question. What will you do differently when the, the smoke clears here to better prepare for the next epidemic? And, uh, William, I'll start with you on this one, since you're the quarterback, right? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Well, you know, I, you know Mark, I, I appreciate it. I, I think that um, there's a lot we've learned uh, to better prepare. You know, if I started internally first, um, I do think our business continuity plans uh, work uh, for the most part, but we learned a lot about you know, things we need to do to enhance them from a the pandemic view. They're great from the, you know, cyber attack view. They're great from the, uh, view of, of um, you know, hurricanes and, and other you know, natural disasters. But the pandemic, I think we've learned a lot about things we just need to tighten up in terms of how and where to use PPE and how to put in, you know, temperature checks in certain facilities of our, of our employees or our associates and how we need those things to, uh, to come to life. Um, I think some other things that we've learned, and, and Wright touched on this, I just wanted to kind of expand on it just for a second, and that is the notion of um, – convening and collaborating. Uh, Wright talked about you know, talking with other CEOs of like delivery systems. That's awesome. We need more of that. And I think we've learned during this time of uh, pandemic, this is not a time to compete. This is not a time to, to be showing off who can put out the best press release about what I did or what you did. This is a time to show up um, for the population, for our communities, and really for America at large. And I think that's another learning you know, for us that uh, being a convener, uh, bringing together the other, the other parts of the health system to solve these problems needs to be part of your pandemic uh, playbook. And probably the last thing I'll close out with is the, the word I love to use a lot here over the last number of years is interoperability. The more we can drive interoperability, the more we can understand how to connect these things together, the more we can have the right you know, flow of data during this period of time. You know, you think about some of the things where everybody struggled to understand capacity in this region versus that region, uh, the number of ventilators, or the number. I mean, the interoperability that, that should come out of this uh, should be should be something that this this country learns from and and how we show up. And ultimately, I, I think something that showed up for us, I, I think, throughout this that I'm proud of is our values, our values of customer back, putting the customer first, whether the customer is the patient, the member, the doctor, the delivery system. Those are the way, those are the things that, that we've learned that were not explicitly in our playbook, but that our values you know, demonstrate as we had our conversation in our various uh, crisis calls that here's the things that we need to work on as we navigate through this. Great. Thanks. Steve, how would you prepare? How will you prepare for the next epidemic? 
Yeah, I think the most, I, I like a lot of what Will has said. I think that the after visit planning, so to speak, the after event planning uh, needs to peel back the onion to see what went well and what didn't, whether that was interoperability or supply chain or stockpiling. Uh, we need to have a regional kind of coordinated debrief, uh, much as you would for any other kind of event. Um, for us, I think it is the supply chain and making sure we have adequate PPE. Uh, we really scrambled uh, and continue to um, work on that to, to this day. Uh, but I think it's, uh, if I look at our local region, it's only been within the past week or two that people have truly come together to staff up these uh, seaport convention center beds and the like. And I'm not so sure that we had that well sequenced before, and we should learn how to do that in the event we ever have to face something like this again. Great. Thanks. Right. How about you and planning for the next one? I think my colleagues have covered a lot of uh, a lot of what you would expect. You know, I go to, to to Will's comment about you know business continuity, and I sort of say the same thing, which is um, I think our our organization had a really solid plan around business continuity, and so I think that went well. Um, I think one of the things we learned around um, virtual and pushing so many of of our of our organization to working from home and working virtually. Um, we needed we needed some additional bandwidth and capacity to ha- to handle all of the administrative leaders um, and non essential folks who are now um, working from home versus in one of our administrative buildings. And so we I think we struggled a little bit with some of that capacity because we weren't expecting you know the vast majority of folks who who didn't need to be in a in a building to be away from it so we could have social distancing and and reduce the concentration concentration of humanity in our facilities. So that's one thing that I think we'll, we'll look at differently. It would clearly agree with Steve around, around the whole supply chain. You're part of a very large uh, healthcare system uh, that's integrated, that has all these resources at its, at its beck and call normally that has national group purchasing organizations and direct lines to all the major vendors. You just sort of believe that you will never face a crisis like this to where your the supply chain for no one's fault, but the supply chain is is ineffective at meeting your needs going through a surge process. Um, and so um, we'll actually be having a conversation, you know, likely not only at the management level in an after event um, assessment process, but also with the strategic planning committee of our board around how Henry Ford should approach. Uh, planning for the next uh, pandemic and are there things that we should be doing? Should we have additional warehousing of supplies and have and not rely as heavily on, on federal response, state response, regional emergency preparedness and, and rely more on our own. Uh, and so that'll, that'll be a conversation that we'll have um, because I, I, I'm not, I would not like our teams to have the, the level of stress that they have today around you know, literally almost 24-7 sourcing globally. Um, and I've been part of conversations in a half dozen countries in the last two weeks trying to directly obtain uh, supplies for our organization. And and so it's something that uh, that's, you know, interesting, a learning experience for all of us, but not something that you necessarily want to have to replicate. Um, and then I think the last thing I would say is that, you know, as we normally as we do surge planning and emergency preparedness planning, you know, I, I generally feel really good about the, the level of support that we provide to our team members. Um, and while I think that we're doing a reasonably good job, um, I, I want to really make sure that our organization um, is as responsive as it needs to be for, you know, now we have 33,000 employees. And, and I want to be comfortable that if we are pushing people the way we're pushing them today, that we have all of the resources in place to support the teams that are on the front line. And, and I think it'd be a little arrogant of me as a CEO to just believe that just because I think we're doing a great job. I hear that we're doing a great job. I talked to a few people that we are, that we're doing as well as we could. And so that's one, one area that I'll be really focused on when we get out of the storm to make sure that we can do everything we can for our team members. Terrific. And, yeah. That's great. I appreciate that. And, and uh, I guess the last thing I would say is that uh, although I asked each of you as healthcare leaders, uh, what could be done for preparedness? I think one of the things this crisis brought at home is that an epidemic is not so much a medical system problem as a public health problem. And you got to start with that 
because if we had, can prevent these better, it'll make all of your jobs much easier and will lead to less, uh, obviously, less pain and, and suffering and deaths on our part. But we're going to have to leave it at that because we have, uh, we're out of time. So I want to give a big thanks to Bright Lassiter, Dr. Steve Strongwater, and Dr. William Fleming for joining us virtually today for the Commonwealth Club's program. You can go to commonwealthclub.org to see the other programs we have in this COVID-19 series, as well as other topics. Thanks also to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and to the other donors. I am Mark Zitter of the Zetima Project, and all three of our panelists are also members of the Zetima Project, I appreciate. And now I want to thank you all and tell you that this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.